Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 74, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and on the electromagnetic frequencies of an atomic warhead. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's going to get chilly in here today, Chris. We're going to go back to the Cold War. Yes. When we read the one, number one, cover date, July 1985, published by Epic Comics. Writer, artist, creator is Rick Veach. Letterer is Rick Veach. Editor, Archie Goodwin. Associate editor, Laurie Sutton. Consulting editor, Jim Shooter for the Marvel's Epic imprint, which is why all these Marvel names are lurking around. Are popping up, yep. That's right. Uh, cover price is $1.50 USD, $1.75 Canadian. Mm-hmm. And as we usually do, we're going to talk about Mr. Uh, Mr. Veach here before we get into the story. Luckily to be nice, uh, Rick, nice and short, this uh, Mr. Veach. He doesn't have a lot to say for himself in the uh, <laughs> is true. public world, but uh, yeah, we have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. Now, he was born May 7th, 1951, in Below Falls, Vermont. He was the fourth out of six children in a large Catholic family. He made his publishing debut with Two-Fisted Zombies back in 1972. That was published by Last Gasp, written by Rick's brother, Tom Veach. Uh, depressed and drifting, Rick solicited grants from the state of Vermont to attend the Joe Cubitt School. He'd be part of the first graduating class in 1978, along with future collaborators and artists on Swamp Thing before him, uh, Stephen R. Bissett and John Tottleben. He did two fantasy stories for Epic Illustrated and a six-issue miniseries called The One, hey. which, is a, which is a unique look at the Cold War, commercialism, spiritualism, and satire. And we'll be reading it right after this very brief history lesson. Yeah, we'll try to keep it as brief as possible, but we really wanted to put this... <laughs> comic in the proper context because absolutely it's pointless without that <laughs> without it and then the context specifically is the last years or though he didn't know that writing it at the time that it was the last years but it was the cold war and uh so for those of you that might have forgotten your uh high school history class or just weren't born and didn't experience didn't it. experience it or maybe you know didn't didn't uh you know don't really tell as much as we can about it in the limited time that we have so it really sort of starts off with the Russian Revolution, which are, was a pair of revolutions in Russia in 1917, which dismantled the country's absolute monarchy and led to the rise of the Soviet Union. It was led by Joseph Stalin, Vladimir Lenin, and Leon Trotsky, and they installed a form of communism as the state government. Uh, this is a really basic definition. Communism is a political theory developed by Karl Marx in the mid-19th century, and that this is really trying to simplify it. It espouses a collective society where resources are pooled and allocated as needed. Believe me, we could go much further into that. Days. That's <laughs> other podcasts have done a better job of that, but that's where, that's where we're going to leave it for for now. For this, yes. Now, uh, at the same time in America, yeah, for much of America's history, they were an isolationist country on the world stage, still building a stable economy through the mid 19th century. Also coped with the War of 1812, the Civil War, and then the Spanish-American War during the 19th century. And it wasn't until World War One that America would debut its military might to the world, and the world was. Uh, pretty impressed. Yeah. Uh, by the time World War II rolled around, America was the popular kid in the classroom, and the Allied nations knew they needed the United 
United States Army in order to win the war on multiple fronts. Indeed, it wasn't even called World War II, and those countries weren't even called allies until America entered the fray. But uh, you get the point. You know, just showing how great we are over here in America, you know, to the, <clears throat> the party don't start till we show up. Uh, now, back in the USSR, when Vladimir Lenin died in 1923, Joseph Stalin had Leon Trotsky labeled an enemy of the state, and Trotsky fled the country for life. Now Stalin ruled the Soviet Union as a total dictator. Uh, there are a lot better podcasts that can probably tell you everything you never knew you needed to know about Stalin's <laughs> reign, but specifically pertinent to the Cold War, in the late 1920s, Stalin collectivized all of Soviet Union's agriculture and began the first five-year plan in 1928, which boosted manufacturing, and this, of course, included munitions. Mm -hmm. We're going to jump ahead to World War II. In 1939, Stalin signed a non-aggression pact with Adolf Hitler, essentially handing Poland over to the Nazis. Well, the Nazis invaded anyway in yeah. 1941, uh, but were repelled by the Soviets and some very poor planning. They weren't ready for the extremely harsh cold weather they were going to run into. Uh, now, America would enter World War II in 1942, allied with Britain and France, and now the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviets had approached the U.K. and France before going to Germany, but were rebuffed. Yeah. Uh, we're going to fast forward three years, and the Allies win the war. Spoiler alert. Right. Uh, <laughs> of course, this was aided by the American creation of the atomic bomb in that very same year. Yeah, all this is all heading into the Cold War, folks. So in the aftermath, the free republics like France and Austria were restored to their original republics, but the USSR took back control of the countries they'd had before Nazis invaded, and took half of Germany besides. This created some bad blood, and in 1947, President Harry S. Truman issued the Truman Doctrine, pledging aid to any country threatened by USSR's expansion. Uh, Churchill also stirred the pot here a little bit. He, there were a series of speeches he gave, uh, even after he was prime minister, that essentially told us that there should be an Anglo-American alliance against Russia helped to uh, sway things. Mm-hmm. Now, Britain uh, had been severely diminished by the war, which left America and Russia as the world's sole superpowers. And yes, they were called superpowers. Right. <laughs> now, in this case, we're talking about a geographic and political term, not, you know, they weren't bitten by radioactive spiders, they weren't born mutants. This is, uh, this is all uh, geographic and political. Now, the term superpower was applied to the Soviet Union and the United States as early as 1944. It was possibly coined by William T.R. Fox in his book, and this is a mouthful, the superpowers, colon, the United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union, hyphen, their responsibility for peace. Now, the definition of a global superpower is loose and contestable, but suffice to say, it is a measure of power at least along four axes. That's military, economic, political, and cultural, and then relative to the to other world powers, uh, you know, if they're higher or lower, you know. Right. It's sort of a... Uh, it's sort of a you-know-it-when-you-see-it sort of situation, uh, by the best way to describe it. Yeah, uh, it's hard to say. You know, definitely having a high uh, military versus other countries mm -hmm. is a big deal, but also if, if your economic is low, then it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, a dance. And it used to be a lot yeah. clearer back in the time of this comic book was written. Certainly. But, uh, uh, nowadays, <laughs> nowadays it seems to be murkier. Uh, the Soviet Union also was severely diminished after World War II and went through a, two, a terrible two-year famine. But they didn't publicize the information, so it looked very imposing. No one knew that they were having trouble, so <laughs> uh, as far as we knew, they were a fully you know, functioning superpower. 
On April 16, 1947, financier Bernard Baruch, in a speech given during the unveiling of his portrait in the South Carolina House of Representatives, <laughs> coins the term Cold War to describe relations between the United States and the Soviet Union, and that term stuck. People dug it. In 1949, the Soviet Union developed their own nuclear weapons, and boy, things got real scary then. Mm -hmm. Now into the Cold War proper here. The Cold War was actually a policy of detente practiced by the U.S. and the USSR for over 40 years. Now both sides built their military might and acquired strategic territories almost equally, engaging in a policy of uh, mutually assured destruction that left neither side willing to fire that first shot. It was none other than Alfred Nobel who illustrated the idea eloquently when, and after his 1867 invention of dynamite, he stated that, quote, the day when two army corps can annihilate each other in one second, all civilized nations, it is to be hoped, will recoil from war and discharge their troops. Uh, recoil from war, maybe. I don't think anyone's going to discharge no. their troops. Anytime soon. Yeah, it's always that old game of, you know, you lower yours first. And uh, yeah. that's where we often end up. That's where we get stuck. Uh, the term mutually assured destruction was coined by mathematician John von Neumann, who worked on the Manhattan Project, that is the U.S.'s atomic bomb that came out in 1945, and advised a preemptive strike against the Soviet Union before they developed one. Again, other podcasts much smarter <laughs> and broader than ours could probably teach you everything that is known about the Cold War, but for this specific Humble Comics podcast, a few highlights. Uh, the McCarthy hearings. Uh, in a speech given in February 1950, Senator Joe McCarthy from Wisconsin claimed he had a list of known communists that worked for the State Department. Later that same month, the congressional resolution was passed to create the Subcommittee on the Investigation of Loyalty of State Department Employees, more commonly referred to as the Tidings Committee, because Senator Millard Tidings of Maryland was the chairman. The committee convened to investigate Joe McCarthy's allegations, and he pretty much ran the whole show. The hearings lasted from March 8, 1950 until July 17th of the same year, questioning more than 60 people, yielding no definitive communists. This created a lot of paranoia about the Soviet Union and communism in America during the 1950s, leading to lots of suspicion and forced conformity. It also paved the way for the Kefauver hearings into juvenile delinquency in 1954, which led to the Comics Code Authority, and we go over all this in episodes one through five of Weird Comics History. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe McCarthy would continue trying to root out communists from every industry and area, concentrating for a time on homosexuals, who he thought were particularly susceptible to blackmail. Now, this practice came to be known as red-baiting red or McCarthyism. He would form subcommittee after subcommittee, uh, calling civilians, police officers, entertainers, and state employees to testify their loyalty to America. Now, when Joe started rooting around in the U.S. Army, he ticked off some of the wrong folks. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> now, his wild antics got him censured by Congress in 1954, and he hung around for two more years before retiring, then passed away the following year on May 2nd. <laughs> Now we're going to go into the space race. Uh, the Soviet Union launched, launched Sputnik 1 on, in October 1957. This is the first artificial satellite to achieve, uh, to achieve orbit around the Earth. The satellite passed over much of America in 1958, throwing a lot of people into panic, as you might imagine. Yep. Now this began that space race between the U.S. and the USSR. And in 1960, President John F. Kennedy committed significant resources to ensure Americans walked on the moon in that very same decade. This also kicked off 
for our purposes, the Silver Age of comic books. Yeah. Uh, with all of its uh, pseudoscientific misunderstanding of x-rays and radiation goodness. That's right. You know, uh, no longer did we start cl- did we classify other planets as having life on them. Often they were suddenly became dead planets and the whole, whole universe got a lot more uh, cold to the world. Now let's Indeed. Uh, talk about another uh, thing that will be coming important later in the podcast, but after the end of World War II, what remained of pre-war Germany was divided into four occupation zones as per the Potsdam Agreement, each one controlled by one of the four occupying Allied powers, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and the Soviet Union. The capital city of Berlin, as the seat of the Allied Control Council, was similarly subdivided into four sectors, despite the city's location, which was fully within the Soviet zone. So I don't think people know that this Berlin, which had an east and west Berlin, as we will come to find out, was totally within uh, East East Germany. So to get out was a tricky situation, even if you were on the west side. But uh, in 1948, following disagreement regarding reconstruction and a new German currency, Stalin instituted the Berlin blockade, preventing food, materials, and supplies from arriving in West Berlin. The United States, the United Kingdom, France, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and several other countries began a massive airlift, supplying West Berlin with food and other supplies. In May 1949, Stalin lifted the blockade, permitting the resumption of Western shipments to Berlin. Now, the German Democratic Republic, that's East Germany, was declared on October 7, 1949. This accorded the East German state administrative authority, but not autonomy, the Soviets were still in control. As West Germany's economy thrived under the free market, not to mention the social freedom, they had many people on the eastern side wanting to make the move. And so uh, 865,000 people migrated from east to West Germany between the years 1950 and 1953. In the first six months of 1953 alone, 226,000 fled over the border. So on uh, June 15, 1961, GDR State Council Chairman Walter Ulbricht, 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 maybe Ulbricht. I think so. Ulbricht, <laughs> one of those. Well, Walter Ulbricht uh, stated in an international press conference, "No one has the intention of erecting a wall." And this was the first time anyone had even mentioned a wall. Yeah, that was like, hmm, that's strange. You, you doth protest a little <laughs> bit, my friend. Uh, well, just two months later, on August 12, 1961, the police and units of the East German Army began to close the border, and by August 13th, the border with West Berlin was closed. East German troops and workers had begun to tear up streets running alongside the border to make them impassable to most vehicles and to install barbed wire entanglements and fences. The barrier was built inside East Berlin or East German territory to ensure it didn't encroach on West Berlin at any point and they could kind of just build more of their leisure without any, you know, any guff sure. from West Berliners. Uh, later, this barrier was placed, replaced by a concrete wall, the first large blocks put into place on August 17th. Eventually, it stretched 91 miles across, and during the construction of the wall, National People's Army and combat groups of the working-class soldiers stood in front of it with the orders to shoot anyone attempted to defect. A huge no-man's land was cleared in front of the wall in many places to provide a clear line of fire at fleeing refugees. Berlin, sir, went from being the easiest place to make an unauthorized crossing between East and West Germany to being the most difficult. Many families were split, while East Berliners employed in the West were cut off from their jobs. The East German government claimed that the wall was an anti-fascist protective rampart intended to dissuade aggression from the West. As for what happened next to the wall, we'll talk about that later on in the podcast. 
it comes down. Oh, you gave it. You gave away. Spoiler alert. All right. <laughs> now, before we get into the comic, let's meet Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, he was appointed to succeed Yuri Andropov uh, by Yuri Andropov as the leader of the Soviet Union in 1984. Gorbachev soon came to believe that fixing the Soviet economy would be nearly impossible without reforming the political and social structure of the communist nation. Gorbachev initiated his new policy policy of perestroika, which is literally restructuring in German, and I'm sorry, in Russian, uh, and its attendant radical reforms in 1986. According to Gorbachev, perestroika was the, quote, conference of development of democracy, socialist self-government, encouragement of initiative and creative endeavor, improved order and discipline, more glasnost, which means openness, criticism and self-criticism in all spheres of our society. It is utmost respect for the individual and consideration for personal dignity. And that takes us uh, right about to where we need to be to read this comic book. That's right. Hopefully we set the stage and not, uh, you know, kept you doodling in your uh, loose leaves while we uh, gave that little uh, presentation. Let's go right into the one, number one. The cover of this and the cover of this series, they're sort of satires of uh, popular products. You know, we'll talk about those later on. This one is a mock-up of a laundry detergent box with concentric red and orange circles radiating out of a point coming from the O in one of the title, the one. Get used to this pattern. You'll be seeing a lot of it in this series. Uh, believe me, the full title is The One, The Last Word in Superheroics. And the title of the story is also featured here. It's The Big Sleep. Title of the, the side of the box looks to be some kind of laundry instructions, beginning with the phrase, always sort your comics. And if you look through that, you can actually read a couple other words and whatever. And at the bottom, there is distorted clown face and plus... Puzz Fundles is written around it, and... What the hell's a Puzz Fundle? Yeah, we'll talk about the <laughs> Puzz Fundles way later on. We gotta kind of put that separate from the rest of this, but yes. uh, it has to do with the backups in this comic. Now, on the inside cover is an article from the Sunday, February 12th, 1984 edition of the New York Times. The headline reads, McLuhan Center says, A-bomb may be good. Now, the article is primarily an interview with Dr. Day... Kirchhoff? Kirchhoff? Kirchhoff. (laughs) Whoever he is, he works at the University of Toronto, and he contends that there should be more atomic weapons because the threat of mutual nuclear annihilation binds humanity in a way that has rewired our brains to think differently. This is essentially the idea of mutually uh, mutually assured destruction, and it would inform the series going forward. Now, the series has a gimmick where scenes are broken up by one-sided interviews. It's like kind of like a confessional yeah. uh, given by one of the main characters uh, in four dark panels arranged vertically. Now, the idea is they're alluding to some grand event that happened, but for the most part, they're alluding only to what's about to happen in the next scene of the comic. Uh, it gives us kind of a, you know, VH1 behind the music kind of vibe, uh, which... May or may not be a good thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it's I, the jury's out on that, but it, it, that's part of the comic. So, uh, the first interview is with Itchy Itch, the richest man on earth. He looks kind of like a blonde Mick Jagger, and uh, not Mick Jagger in 1985 <laughs> either. We mean Mick Jagger in 2018 after a hard weekend. He's looking rough. He's ragged. Uh, now he's smoking a cigarette and talking about events that will actually occur throughout the series. Itchy says, "In the beginning." I was only in it for the buck. The big sleep, the superiors, those were unforeseen. It was still the atomic age then. People were very nervous in those days, and rightly so. 
There were enough nuclear weapons waiting in the hidden silos to fulfill the darkest fears of every man, woman, and child on Earth. It was a situation crying out to be exploited. The governments were dinosaurs, unaware that evolution had passed them by. I was able to get close enough to two of the dumbest to reach right up and grab them both by the courage. Then I began to squeeze. And it looks like Itchy Itch is a computer software developer uh, supplying operating systems to the United States and the USSR. Yeah, he's left a back door in these programs. They allow him to hijack them and will without being detected. And now Itchy has decided to use them. Yes, uh, President McKenzie says, Itch, for God's sake, stop it now. Well, there's still time. I don't know how in hell you've got control of our ships, but... Now, Itchy sits in his crummy-looking easy chair, a small black-and-white television's on either side of him. Uh, President McKenna of the U.S. Uh, on one, and the other with Premier Kubalov of the USSR, and they're both yelling at him at the same time. Itchy replies, Mr. President, my company is supplying advanced computer equipment to both of your navies for over a decade. It was absurdly simple to include a secret dead man program in each system we installed. Does he mean dead man like Boston Brand, the, the murdered trapeze artist who became dead man? Yeah, that, I would think so, but maybe maybe it's just a uh, an homage <laughs> to that character. Could very well be. Now, behind Itchy is a gigantic black and white screen that shows a terrific battle at sea between American and Russian battleships that might look better if it weren't colored so darkly. Yeah. Itchy says... The programs have been activated. Your valiant sailors are no longer in command of their vessels. Itchy itches. And I'm going to give the world the greatest battle it has ever seen. Premier Kobolov says, It's your maniac! You think the Soviet set will sit back and watch its fleet decimated? We will retaliate with everything in our arsenal. And I mean everything! Now we're going to meet the leaders of the free world in this comic book. First, we've got President McKenzie, who's president of the United States. I'm guessing he was probably originally drawn to be Ronald Reagan, but uh, <laughs> but uh, now he's got great temples like Reed Richards. Uh, it doesn't look entirely like Reagan anymore. Yeah. And, uh, a, little, he's... a little thinner, too, you notice, right? It seems like he's yes. a little more sallow, but essentially Ronald Reagan. Yes, even even though later it's said that he is the successor of Reagan. Uh, and he is always smoking cigars. Yeah, and then over on the other side, we got Premier Kubalov, who looks like a much flabbier Euro, Yuri Andropov, sort of, but with a really fuzzy buzz-cut hair. What's interesting is, uh, I, I would say Kubalov is more of a pastiche of, like, a several Russian leaders, whereas, you know, Mackenzie's definitely just Reagan, as far as yeah. vis- visually, you know? When I when I saw Kubalov, I wanted to yell Norm at the uh, a comment. little bit, you know. You can see that <laughs> a little know? George went. But like the fu- the fuzzy <laughs> hair is sort of like uh, oh gosh, who was the guy right after uh, Stalin? Uh, gosh, Khrushchev, sort of like Khrushchev's okay. hair, Andropov's face. Uh, I don't know, a little little everything. And but he uses Russian amalgamation. It, yeah, that's you know, <laughs> he, he's a Russian guy, and he uses an electrolarynx to speak. Uh, I you don't you don't see these anymore. I think oh. the nature of tracheotomies have changed. I think now they can actually like you put your finger over the hole. There's a plug there or something like that. Hmm. But back when people would have some of their throat removed, usually due to throat cancer, the the way they could speak was by jamming this device in their neck. And out would come the creepiest robot voice. It would be like listening to Stephen Hawking all the time. Yeah. Uh, that I will not attempt to emulate as I do Kubalov's voice because uh, <laughs> we have a lot of voices to do, folks. This is true. <laughs> now, Itchy knows he's got McKenna and Kubalov by the grapes. Uh, for either side to retaliate would most definitely mean the end of the world. It astounds me when I realize that here we are, 
about to enter the 21st century, and yet our statesmen are still admired in rhetoric reminiscent of the First World War. It is no longer a question of pride, gentlemen, but that of global survival. You will find a way out of your dilemma, or we will all die. It's that simple. Then why, in the name of all that's holy, did you inform the networks? As soon as they started reporting this, we had riots in every major population center. He's trying to topple us. You want total anarchy, is that your game, Itch? No, Mr. Premier, you can keep your trappings of power. I'm looking for something else. A short but intense worldwide trauma is what I'm after. You see, since Hiroshima, each of us has had a terrible black foreboding locked up within our hearts. I have unleashed that foreboding in hopes it will run amok, especially in the financial markets. My theory is that when people are faced with their ultimate fear, they'll tend not to handle their money matters with the usual care and attention. On the other hand, I have been planning this little charade for many years. My investments have been strategically placed to capitalize upon the reckless errors others will make under pressure. By tomorrow, I expect roughly one quarter of the world's resources will be under my control. But of course, I'm depending on you gentlemen not to do anything too rash. I mean, what good is all that money if there's no world to spend it in? Oh, um, I'll leave you now to settle your differences. And so Itchy crawls into bed, which is, strangely, a bear mattress on the floor. I wonder if that's where he got his name Itchy, because hey, I'd hey, imagine hey. that's not too comfortable. Yeah, it looks itchy, yeah. <laughs> now, he's also smoking in bed, and that's never a good Don't idea. Do that, <laughs> now, President McKenzie and Premier Kubalov are kind of upset, as you might imagine. Yeah, they're, they're in hot water right now. So uh, we're about to shift scenes here, though. We have an interview page with Egypt, and no, not the country. Egypt is a woman, one of the main characters in this story. She looks sort of like a skinny blonde woman with a white stripe dyed in the center of her hair, right? Something like that? Yeah. Maybe the roots are coming out on the sides. It's hard to tell. Uh, she's also wearing an off-the-shoulder pink sweater, red nails, and lipstick. Very 80s. Even a pair of those Venetian blind shades that are useless that you can't see out of. That yeah, what's the point? Yeah. Kanye West loves them. So uh, she's talking about the first time she heard that the U.S. and Soviet Union were at war. She was at an art gallery discussing a showing of her paintings when the gallery's owner's wife came in and told them the news. And she threw up twice on the way home. Egypt also mentioned something called the big sleep, which didn't affect her. But that is the title of the issue's story, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and we'll find all about that in a moment. <laughs> uh, seen from down a long hallway, a young brown-haired boy is standing and sucking his thumb. He's holding a Mr. T doll, which is pretty cool. And that's uh, this boy is Larry, and he is the son of Egypt. Uh, in three panels, we close up on the boy. Yeah, and when we get to the third, he says, Mommy, are they really going to blow up the world? Now, the front door opens to reveal that the television is on behind Larry, and a couple of people are watching on the couch. Egypt rushes in and hugs Larry. No, don't worry, honey. It's going to be all right. I promise. And a guy named Jay Hole goes, ha! A fellow named Doc says, The stupid bastards! How could they let this happen? And then a woman named Gouda says, They're really gonna do it, aren't they, Doc? I can feel it in my bones. And so let's meet these folks sitting on the couch. Sure. The older man, Doc Benway, it's an older fellow wearing a Red Sox baseball shirt. Looks like an off-brand one, too. It does, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, his gray hair is swept up, uh, not unlike Larry Fine from the Three Stooges. Uh, looking at him, he's kind of a throwback to the 60s, a typical aging urban hippie at the time. Yeah, Gouda is his girlfriend who appears to be younger. 
She wears I think the, so. She wears a yellow blouse and has a red headband tied around her forehead. She's more militant-minded revolutionary in talk, at least, in practice. She's sitting on the couch with the rest of them, at least right now. Uh, and she, I'd say, represents kind of a 1970s Black Panther aesthetic. Yeah, and then we have Jay Hole, who's Doc's son. He wears jeans and no shirt, and uh, he will not put on a shirt for the rest of the series. He refuses. <laughs> yep. uh, he's got long, shaggy hair and really bad confrontational attitude. And... Uh, yeah, I really like the way that that you 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 set this up here, where he's a representation of the '80s. I, that's something I had missed. Yeah. Uh, where each each character here kind of represents a different decade, um, and uh, like we said, he does represent the '80s, and he will become a very big character in the story. Yeah, uh, talking about this before doing the show, I mentioned this was the third time I read this in full, and then I've kind of read it again to uh, deal with the script. So I think that I finally. Starting to understand it. <laughs> parts of the story. It's a really weird, dense story, folks. But it uh, is, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Doc uh, says, Gouda, if what we're seeing is the truth, I don't see how they could avoid some kind of nuclear exchange. The first missiles might already be on the way. As he says, his tears are rolling down Gouda's cheeks. Uh, Egypt runs around the apartment in a panic, gathering food, while Larry stands nearby. What's the matter with you? We have to prepare! Get food, water, find shelter. Gouda goes, there is no shelter, Egypt. I mean, actually, it's quite possible that the basement of this building that they're in is prepared as a fallout shelter. There were many it's possible. around the country <laughs> at the time. Now, Larry starts grabbing at his mom, and he's freaking out. It's not all right, is it? They're going to drop atom bombs on us, aren't they? At this point, Egypt snaps and grabs Larry's wrists. Yes! They're going to incinerate us with those horrible bombs. And if we live through that, we'll die of radiation poisoning. All right? Now shut up and let me think. Well, she probably could have handled that a bit better. Yeah, yeah, kind of flew off the handle there a little bit. Just a touch. I guess we'll allow it. Um, now, suddenly, Larry is staring off into space in a daze. He's probably in shock from his mother's outburst. There. That's what I would think. She says, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Larry. I didn't mean to. Larry... Are you okay? Oh, now you're concerned with Larry. My God, he's got into some sort of trance. What have I done? And then we notice that Doc and Gouda are also in a similar spaced-out state. Yeah, but J-Hole is unaffected. Yeah, he goes, beats me, but I swear you done it to Gouda and Doc Benway, too. They're both in the ozone. They must not be able to handle the reality of this thing. They're just blanking out. Now, Egypt looks out the window, and people outside are standing around in the same blanked-out condition. J-Ho, look! It's happening out on the street, too! The rioting and looting has stopped! Everyone's staring into space! I bet it's some kind of weird nerve gas or something. Oh, well, that'd be a relief. Right? (laughs) (laughs) But dig it, Egypt! We ain't affected! Maybe, just maybe, we're gonna survive! Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird. No, there's a fly, a blinding flash of yellow light. Next up, we have a four-panel interview with Larry, who tells us a bit about what happened when he went into the trance. He went to another place where Doc, Gouda, and a bunch of other people were also milling about. We were all really scared because we thought maybe the world had ended and we didn't know where we were or anything. And then it was like everybody could look at each other, except not with our eyes. And there was a big light, and we weren't scared no more. 
The city of Manhattan is silhouetted against a brilliant orange, yellow, and red flash of concentric circles. That's right. Remember that symbol on the detergent box from the front mm-hmm. cover? Told you we'd see it again. Egypt says, Jesus, what was that? It was a bomb. A mother shucking bomb. But atom bombs are supposed to make firestorms and shockwaves. That seemed more like just a flash of light. Oh, yeah? Tell it to those guys. And Larry, Doc, and Gouda have all passed out. Larry's on the floor, Gouda laying over Doc. Egypt heads over to check him out. I... I can't find a pulse on any of them. They're dead. And my Larry, too. Maybe it wasn't no regular bombs. I bet it was one of those neutron jobbies they used to talk about. The one that gives off just radiation. People die, but everything else gets left intact. Well, that's a comforting thought, Jay Hall. You really He's do full have of to, good news, you really isn't it? got all the good news here. <laughs> uh, Egypt cradles them in motionless form of her son and cries while expressing her guilty anguish. Jay Hall, on the other hand, sees possibilities. He grabs Egypt by the arm and heads out the front door. Come on, let's go check it out on the street. Yag! Uh, Jay Hall carries her bodily down the street, strewn <laughs> with lifeless bodies. They all seem to have knocked out right in the middle of what they were doing, one leaning into her shopping cart. Another still loosely clutches some wads of cash while lying on the floor. Sorry, Egypt, but I ain't letting you out of my sight. Now we cut to another one of them black paneled interview pages. This time we're going to talk with Premier Kugelhoff. He explains that in the same uh, sequence of events that are now named The Big Sleep, that also happened over in the Soviet Union. Now, suspecting a sneak attack by the United States, Kugelhoff ordered that their missiles be fired. Back over to Egypt and J-Hall, they've made it to the top of, uh, okay, I'm not, we're not sure what this building is, okay? No, we don't know. Based on its overall look and position on Man- Manan Island, it would definitely have to be the Twin Towers, but... You figure, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I looked at this like five times, there's only one of them. Just one, yeah. So that's how it is in this comic book universe. It even looks like one of the Twin Towers, but there's just the one, and I just couldn't yep. wrap my brain around why he would just draw the one. Uh, maybe he only felt like drawing one of them, but... Could be. Uh, we've, it's, so it's the one towers in this universe. Yes. <laughs> uh, Jay Hall has a sniper rifle yelling about becoming king of the world. But then he spies something coming over the horizon. Jesus, it's a cruise missile, and it's heading straight for us. That makes sense. It probably uses the tallest building in the city as a target. See, and that would have been the Twin Towers. Right, yeah. You and your high ground. Jay Hall raises the rifle and peers through the scope at the missile. He says, shut up, will ya? Maybe I can knock it out of commission with my rifle. Fat chance. The only thing that'll save us now is a miracle. Huh? And then, another brilliant burst of concentric circles. Now we have an interview with Doc to find he's a wacky old coot. (laughs) Yes. He also recalls some of what's happened during the big sleep, thanks to having taken 300 acid trips in 1968. Busy says, year. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's almost that's what a day almost. So, uh, so he says, now here the images get fuzzy, but I'm sure we pop back into the real world to do something important. Only it was like we didn't belong here, like we couldn't stay, not without a physical body. Now, in the middle of the brilliant burst of light, a silhouette of a human form can be seen. Yeah, it flies toward the oncoming missile and eventually hops aboard it like some kind of mechanical bull. Yeah, Jay Jay Hull goes, yeah, I see him. He's on the missile, riding it like a cowboy, and he's drawing stuff out of it. 
Stuff that's forming a skeleton inside him. Thank you for the free description of the artwork, J-Hole. That's one of the more difficult it's, things to do when writing a comics for the Comics for the blind. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Egypt says, maybe we got a miracle after all. Miracle my butt. I know what he is. Missile and superhero coming in for a landing. Move! Now the missile smashes into the building with a crash and causes lots of damage near the roof area. However, no nuclear explosion. So that is a relief. But the roof is a wreck. J-Hole and Egypt pull themselves from the smoking rubble. Yeah, J-Hole goes, Ugh, thanks, Egypt. You okay? Yeah, I think so. But who was that? You didn't recognize him? You read comic books, don't you? Yeah, but that's not possible, is it? In the smoke, we can see the shadowed outline, outline of a human form. A lot of things happened today that seemed impossible yesterday, but I believe what my eyes tell me, and right now, they're seeing a real-life superhero. This is the one, which is a male figure in dark black bodysuit covering everything. Over his face and chest are the same orange, yellow, and red concentric circles that we told you would be a big whoop in this story. Yeah, J-Hole goes, hmm, hey man, how's it going? Thanks for saving us. We really appreciate it. Uh, um, I'm Jail, and this is Egypt. Uh, what, what's your name? Uh, the one becomes more visible as the smoke clears, and Egypt whispers, My God, look at him now! Uh, not, not the talkative type, eh? Uh, well, if you have to fly off to save the world some more, that's okay with us. We understand. And the one stands silently, staring at Egypt and J-Hole. Yeah, Egypt whispers, He's just staring at us. Why doesn't he say something? The one finally does speak. However, he has the voice of Larry. Mommy? L Larry? Baby? Why are you here with me, Mommy? You're not with the other, are you? And with that, Egypt faints into J-Hole's arms. Now on to our one-on-one with J-Hole, who rolls lights and smokes a joint during his exposition, which is pretty impressive, considering, you know, not sure. the first time I've seen someone do such a thing, but, you know. Uh, I figure the hands would be a little shaky. Do you think so? It's second nature. Yeah. Uh, he says uh, that after Egypt fainted, he and the one regarded each other for a while, even getting J-Hole mad at one point. They had, like, a staring <laughs> contest. Then the one flew off. J-Hole carried Egypt down 108 flights of stairs by himself. And then the twin and the twin towers were 110 stories each. But then why didn't Veach draw two of them? I don't understand. <laughs> J-Hole goes, boy, I'll tell you, I was ready to tump her when we hit the street. It's a good thing that creep showed up and offered to get her home. Yeah, we see on the next page, the creep is a really goofy guy in green sunglasses Indeed. and orange hair teased about a foot into the sky. He wears a checkered jacket, a shirt with dot design and a green striped tie, just as screech powers as you like it. Uh, <laughs> yes. He's got buck teeth. He's supposed to look ridiculous is the point here. Yes, absolutely. Now, this is the one. Hey. Hmm, yes, there are two versions of the one. Uh, we could probably call this his alter ego, sort of. Kind of. Uh, now, to clarify things, we're going to call the one in the black bodysuit the superhero one, and the one with the orange hair and suit sunglasses the human one. Though the human one is the only one that ever actually speaks. Right, and here he says, Hi! Need a hand? 
That's perfect voice. <laughs> now, at the bottom of the stairwell, Jay Hole pulls out a switchblade, and he goes, Who or what are you? Me? Ah, uh, I'm just an average person. Sort of. Like you. You ain't nothing like me, Shuckhead. You don't look like a creep. You look like a creep if I ever saw one. Why don't you drop dead with the rest of them? Dead? They're not dead. They're only sleeping. A shot of the street outside shows everyone is still lying around, unmoving. J-Hole continues, Listen, dim bulb, I seen Egypt taking pulses. She couldn't find none. Those bastards are dead. And she got the first aid badge as a brownie scout, so she knows how to take pulses. She does. It's a special kind of sleep. Actually, it's more like a trance. Their heart rates are virtually nil. Your friend here hasn't fainted. She's got under with the rest. Just what the hell are you spouting? There's nothing to worry about. They'll be coming out soon. Things will be back to normal before you know it. Back to normal? Uh, listen, man, I got a few things to take care of. Do me a favor and see that Egypt gets home, will ya? Could be a, your big chance, know what I mean? <laughs> Catch you later, creep. Who's the creep here? Uh, Jay Hall runs off and the human one picks Egypt up off the ground. Of course, we've got to have four panels of interview with the president, Mr. McKenzie here, who, of course, smokes a cigar the entire time. Yeah, he says the U.S. launched their missiles at the USSR at the same time that the USSR launched theirs, and not one of them detonated. Since nukes became futile all of a sudden, the future of this conflict belonged to whoever would come up with the next generation of weaponry. Luckily, the U.S. had just such a thing up its sleeve. Yes, Mackenzie goes, As it turned out, we had the edge on the Soviets here. Our people had been developing something called Project Superior since the late 30s. I was the first president since Roosevelt to be briefed on it. It was fantastic. Right out of Nietzsche's ravings. The first two examples were ready for testing. I was told millions of lives would be jeopardized if things went wrong. But the need was real. The Republic was not only facing the greatest threat in our history, but also the most unique opportunity. I authorized the test. Now, somewhere in America, a tank sits in a grassy field, silhouetted by a low-hanging pink moon. They don't know why they've been sent there, and they seem to resent it a little, and suddenly, they spot something on the horizon. Yeah, a fellow named Truman goes, Heads up! Lights cracking over the rise. Heading our way. What do we got, Cracker? And Cracker says, Computer says definite and ve- land vehicle. 82% probability it's a car. No big deal. Lieutenant says, we're not taking any chances. Truman, are you tracking? Piece of cake, Lieutenant. Can't miss from here. A Lieutenant computer pegs it as a 1979 Dodge Aspen. Two passengers. No weapon systems. Looks clean. Lieutenant, the Lieutenant doesn't like this at all. and has Truman use night vision to get a closer look at this Dodge Aspen. He's even able to pick up audio and can hear the conversation between this man and woman in the front seat. The woman named Amelia goes, Oh, Charlie, feels so good to be out of that place, away from all those people. They try to be nice, but... I just wish they would let us be alone together more often. Truman goes, It's a guy and a broad. I snuck out there to the proving grounds for a little old hoochie coo, eh? Amelia continues, I suppose they feel they have to keep us under observation, but I'm so sick of all the questions and testing. I never feel like I could just be me. 
It's hard to be natural when we're watched. Constantly, isn't it? Truman chips in. Listen to that line. He gonna slap the make on her now. The woman appears to lean toward the man for a hug. Oh, Charlie, I love you so. Amelia. Truman is very excited. Woo-woo. Nice move. Got her right in the clinch. Watch him go for her. Suddenly, Amanda slaps Charles. She goes, Charles, don't you ever touch me there. Ouch. I'm sorry. I. Truman and Cracker are very confused and then grossed out. God's sake, I'm your sister. <laughs> Record scratch. Uh, now, while Amelia and Charles argue, the, the lieutenant gets some orders over the radio. I, I couldn't help myself, Amelia. Sometimes when I'm near you, I get these funny feelings. Don't you ever? No, we're family. We can't have feelings like those. And uh, what we didn't mention is the only thing on television is Bonanza repeats. So, uh, at the moment, right. <laughs> Truman goes, this is better than Bonanza anyway. And Lieutenant on the phone says, are you sure, sir? From here, it looks like a couple of kids. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I understand, sir. The Lieutenant turns to Truman and Cracker. Lock and load, boys. I just talked to HQ. Target verified. Cracker wonders if they're making a mistake, but the lieutenant says these orders come straight from the top. Oh, well, that's what they get for being perverts. And with one shot, the Dodge Aspen is completely obliterated. A huge explosion sends pieces of the car flying everywhere. Target status. What do you think? Let's get the hell out of here. Wait a second. Something's moving out here. Give me a break. Ain't nothing move, gonna move after a direct hit with 155-millimeter ordnance. I got news for you, Truman. I count two of them rising out of the wreckage. Both alive? How? Here they come! Jesus! Nobody can move that fast! The two figures hit the tank with a blang and then punch their fists into its sides, trapping the men within. And then, with their bare hands, two grotesquely burnt and muscular people pry the top from the tank. Believe it or not, they're pretty angry. Now we complete this issue's inter- interview sections and our need to mention them for the rest of the episode with Itchy Itch right back where we started. He says that despite a bunch of unforeseen things happening, his plan worked out better than hoped. Now Itchy controls one half of the world's resources. And he's annoyed that the Americans had an ace up their sleeve for which he couldn't account and therefore profit from. He says... Thankfully, they made the tactical blunder of holding tests out in open ground in full view of every spy satellite in orbit. And you have to give it to the Russians. They were quick to mount a credible of somewhat flawed deterrent to Project Superior. Premier Kubalov is in his Kremlin headquarters, uh, pink with rage and physically berating members of his cabinet. He says, Incompetent imbeciles! Traitors! I will purge you all to the last man! You'll wish you were back under Stalin before I'm through. First you tell me not one bomb from our vaunted nuclear arsenal succeeded in detonating, and now you show me this. Enter Verokta Pavola, but we'll call her Vera. She's one of Kubalov's concubines that he installed as a director of the Supreme Soviet Institute of Nutritional Research, which is a mouthful, and uh, this uh, promotion happened just last week. Yeah, and he says, uh, yes, yes, of course, but... Uh... This was in consideration of our uh, uh, special relationship, and no one ever expected you to, uh, you know. Uh, 
I have always taken my duties seriously, Mikael. Oh, great Lenin's ghosts. Now isn't it time for this? I'm up to my neck in problems. The imperialists have developed a new generation of weaponry to replace all the useless atomic bombs. I can't tell you anymore. They've developed some sort of super soldier. Am I correct? That's supposed to be top secret information. How did you... Perhaps one of your generals talks in his sleep a little, eh? That's not important right now. You see, I think I stumbled across a solution to this threat. Let, let me tell you a story, Mikhail. One I pieced together from the files that our brave soldiers captured at the end of the last wave. I was researching one of my own. Special interests uh, is about a German nutritionalist and a little mouse that he experimented on. And Vera produces a black and white photo of a slender man in spectacles with a swastika armband standing before a gnarled, ugly mouse about the size of a Volkswagen bug. Let me tell you the story of Ubermouse. Continued next issue. Mm-hmm. But we're going to continue after a little bit of a break to uh, rest our vocal cords and uh, <laughs> regroup. We're going to get back. We're going to tell you about every other issue in this six-issue series. We're going to wrap up our bio on Rick Veet and even wrap up on the Cold War and other effects that it had on uh, American pop culture. We interrupt this program. This is a national emergency. Important instructions will follow. The following message is transmitted at the request of the United States government. This is not a test. A nuclear attack was commenced against the United States. Fifteen nuclear bombs have detonated in several areas across the country. They include Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, Denver, Detroit, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New York, Pennsylvania, Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. At this time, all residents within a 400-mile radius of these areas should seek a fallout shelter. Fallout is a product of nuclear attacks. Prolonged exposure to fallout will result in certain death. If there is a nearby location that has been designated as a fallout shelter, go there now. Otherwise, seek shelter in the interior part of a strong building on the lowest floor. Make sure you have food, water, and a battery-powered radio with you. Do not exit the fallout shelter until the all-clear has been given. Tune to a station that is serving your area for more information. The President will be speaking on all stations shortly. Stand by for this message. This is an emergency action notification. All broadcast and cable systems shall transmit this emergency action notification message. This station has interrupted its regular program at the request of the White House to participate in the emergency alert system. During this emergency, most stations will remain on the air, providing news and information to the public in assigned areas. This is WPIX. We will continue to serve the New York City area. If you are not in this local area, you should tune to stations providing news and information for your local area. You are listening to the emergency alert system serving the New York City area. Do not use your telephone. The telephone lines should be kept open for emergency use. The emergency alert system has been activated. And we're back. Yeah. With the one. 
we're going to talk about the rest of that series here, starting with the one number two, cover dated September 1985. Now, the cover resembles an American dollar bill with the human one, that's the one with the sunglasses and high hair, in place of George Washington. In it, after Egypt wakes up in the same bed as that creepy human one, she's fully clothed. Uh, well, Egypt is fully clothed by her standards, right. which isn't much. Pretty scanty, yeah. Yes. Now, everyone else in the apartment, that's Larry, Gouda, and Doc, they wake up from that big sleep, and they all dance together to The Seventh Son. Uh, we're going to say by Dion, maybe? Sure. There's like five versions, so it could be yeah. a lot of them. But <laughs> uh, just why not? This is the one by Dion. So uh, Jay Hall shows up with a suitcase full of a half a million stolen dollars and a gut shot. The human one removes the bullet from Jay Hall's guts and causes him to manifest an evil being known as the other. This makes Jay Hall turn all green and gross and like oozy. And uh, the human one puts him to sleep to heal his wound. Over in the Soviet Union, Vero Pavlova be, be reveals the human subject hastily injected with the Ubermouse serum known simply as Bog. He's a massive, blonde-haired, bony-faced strongman in red, heights, in red tights with a blue cape figure like Dolph Lundgren. Hmm. Right? It's not of that, that so. sort That's of look. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Vera reveals that the original Ubermouse grew to Godzilla size and destroyed the city of Zutgart before slinking into the Atlantic Ocean and presumably drowning. Vera thinks they can control Bog's size by controlling his food intake. She also reveals privately that she has other, more personal desires for the state-approved superior power, uh, namely screwing him. Just Basically, make that yes. clear here. <laughs> now, back in America, Charles and Amelia, that's that brother and sister we met at the end of the issue, uh, they have been allowed to out, out for a run through Manhattan. Uh, you know, so long as they go super speed, so no normal humans can see them, that is. Now, at Amelia's behest, they go off track and run up north to the farm in which they were raised. Uh, Charles and Amelia reminisce about their shared experience of their parents being killed by commie agents. It's also revealed that their dad was a government scientist that developed the serum that made them superior. So they, uh, and they took it to uh, honor his memory. Sure. Now, back in Manhattan, while showboating for Amelia, Charles accidentally blows up an oil tanker, which is a bummer. Right. Uh, he rushes uh, the two to, uh, of them back to the farm and expresses his frustration. Uh, Amelia reveals that she has feelings for him as well. Uh, when she rebuffs Charles's kiss and runs away, he uproots a large tree with their childhood tire swing still hanging from the branch. Ooh. Uh, in the USSR, Mikhail Kublov. Kubalov bursts into Vera Pavlova's bedroom to find her just about to make time with Bog. She sends the Bog into the kitchen while Vera and Mikhail argue. Bog cracks the, cracks the refrigerator open and finds it full of food, so he gets to eating. This puts him on a rampage, and Bog bursts out of Vera, Vera's kitchen wall, stomping into the Kremlin night. Back at the apartment, Jay Hull convinces Egypt to step out into town with him and spend some of his ill-gotten cash. She agrees quickly and leaves Larry with Gouda and Doc, which is probably like a <laughs> persistent situation, I have a feeling. While Larry sits in his room sucking his thumb, the superhero one flies into his window and offers his hand. And that brings us to the one number three, cover dated November 1985. This cover looks like a digital calculator. Uh, the numbers on the buttons replaced by heads of the characters on the series. In it, the superhero one is flying, uh, flying Larry by the seat of his pants to the North Pole. Literally, he's holding Larry by the seat of his shorts. <laughs> yeah, it, really, it really seems like an uncomfortable and not safe way and to do not it. Not a good flight, yeah. All right, that's now, fine. Now, on the way, they bump into Charles. 
who is running to Russia to fight Bog. Before parting, Larry informs Charles that his origin story is not what he thinks he is, and also that Amelia ain't his sister. At the North Pole, the human one is hanging out at a convergence of electromagnetic energy. Sort of looks like there's a like a sun growing there. Uh, now the human one walks Larry into this sun while explaining that things are about to change drastically, whether the human race is ready for it or not. There's also a preponderance about how our eyes are a big part of the problem. And that will come back later. Uh, but meanwhile, Egypt is partying with Jay Hull and a bunch of his friends in some squalid hotel room. Jay Hull lies shirtless, of course, on a bed while people around him shoot heroin. Though to be fair, like I said, Jay Hull's always shirtless, so it's not like this is a new thing. Uh, Egypt is not enjoying the scene. She prepares to leave, and then Jay Hull turns into that green, bile-spewing creature controlled by the other and threatens Egypt, even spits some bile on the wall next to her. Everyone else at the party also turns green and gross. Egypt runs down the hallway with Jay Hall ack, ack, acking behind her, uh, but not chasing her, just from the room. Bog is still destroying Moscow, eating everything in sight. He does look a, lit, a little bit bigger, but not ubermouse big yet. He's sort of like maybe eight feet tall. Inflated, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mikhail Kubalov is tracking Bog in a military helicopter. The plan is to lead Bog over to an intercontinental ballistic missile that will launch Bog over to America. But Bog's got some other ideas how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Bog, Bog brings down the helicopter and grabs Kubalov menacingly. Kubalov reinforces the socialist ideal, and Bog appears to calm down, prepared to do his duty. They make it to the missile, then Bog grabs Kubalov and takes him up to the cockpit. Before the missile launches, Bog drops Kubalov to the ground, and the missile takes off around him. Amazingly, Kubalov survives and reaches for his voice box lying nearby on the ground. Just then, Charles shows up and steps on Kubalov's hand. I mean, I got to give it up to him for ever surviving a fall from the top of an ICBM of a, missile. Yes. And then, like, to be in the wake of its launch. That's pretty pretty hardy fella. For Made out of some sturdy stuff. I'll tell yeah. you, yeah, it must be the uh, vodka and yogurt. <laughs> anyway, uh, at the apartment, Egypt arrives uh, home just as Gouda and Doc realize that Larry is missing. Everyone freaks out for a minute, then the superhero one shows up with Larry, who's now wearing the human one's green sunglasses. At just that moment, Bog touches down in Manhattan, toppling, toppling a big green building. Bog is intercepted by Amelia while he devours the contents of a hot dog cart. While they begin their destructive fight, the superhero one drops Larry off in his apartment. Egypt, angry with Larry and, you know, scared because he had vanished for a while, slaps the sunglasses off of him to reveal that Larry hasn't got any eyes. And, and it's not like there are sockets either, like just smooth skin where the eyeballs used to be. Like even like Even like a raised... Relief of the eyeball, you know, but it, it looks very, yeah. it looks worse than a socket, believe it or not. Yeah, it's, it's very, very creepy. Very yeah, creepy. Definitely. <laughs> that brings us into the one number four. This is January 1985, and this cover looks like a very, very sweaty Coca-Cola can. In it, we have Charles still at the Kremlin, and he's absolutely wrecking the place. He's chucking old locomotive trains around, laying waste to soldiers. Vera Pavlova taunts him with his incestual predicament. And suggests that since Bog is in America, maybe he and America, maybe uh, Bog and Amelia are busy getting it on. Mm. And so Charles rips Vera's dress off and has very violent sex with her, off panel, of course. Right. Later, we see she is injured and wears a neck brace. 
but also has a very satisfied yeah, look she, about her. She's happy with the way things went, believe it or not. Yeah. Now, in Manhattan, Bog and Amelia are fighting. They're literally tearing apart the city. Uh, the apartment where Egypt and Larry uh, are cracks apart from the quaking. Gouda appears to find Larry's dead body, but then wipes away the skin on his face, which is really gross, yeah. revealing that he has that uh, that concentric target mask of the superhero one underneath. Right. So what's going on here now? Uh, Doc and Egypt get down to the street where crowds of people are running, and uh, the two of them get separated in the chaos. Amelia looks to be cleaning Bog's clock elsewhere, but seriously injuring herself in the process. Bog, however, is uninjured. Bog wraps Amelia's body in a collapsed bus and throws the whole package into the Hudson River. Over at the North Pole, the superhero one bumps into Charles again. This time he's running back to America to save and cockblock Amelia. The superhero one directs Charles to the human one who's still standing at that electromagnetic sun dealie. Uh, the human one reveals the truth to Charles, that he was raised from a test tube baby and his memories are implanted and... Amelia is therefore not his sister. Now this causes Charles to scream, Amelia! So loudly and for so long that it creates tidal waves and could even be heard by Bog all the way in New York. Now this is where we can really see Rick Veach's sound effects lettering style. It's uh, really old school and it's in the vein of Harvey Kurtzman from early Mad Magazine. It's uh, really neat stuff here. Yeah. Now even some of the letters look like the old Mad logo. That's which I is pretty cool. so, right? They, they, yeah, yeah. Definitely the like, curl, like, yeah. yeah. Now, these sound effects become part of the artwork, following their sources closely, which is a really cool effect. It's cool. It's very, you know, uh, embracing the comic book sound effect uh, for this, and I really dig it. And it's almost it's almost out of place to see such a, uh, you know, Mad Magazine-looking font in, in a somewhat, I don't know. Grimy. Grimy book. story. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. the way to put it. I wasn't going to say serious, but just sort of a dark, grimy book. But yeah. uh, there it is, and it, it looks awesome. It's cool. I recommend you take a look. Uh, over to the one number five, March 1986 cover date. This cover is a tattered poster of the human one, pointing at the viewer, the reader, which reads, The One Wants You, obviously a parody of the Uncle Sam Wants You Army recruitment poster, so uh, you know what it looks like. While Bog continues to destroy New York, separating it from New Jersey with a deep fissure that kills thousands on bridges and tunnels, Charles shows up in New Jersey and fishes Amelia out of the river. Egypt is standing nearby to witness this. But when she tries to get involved, Charles gives her a look that sends Egypt running. Charles pries Amelia from her seal cocoon. She is still alive. While he sets her broken bones, he explains what he's learned, primarily that they are, relate, that they are not related and can therefore have sex. Amelia heads back to the upstate farmhouse they believe to be their childhood home just to be sure, So, but Charles says he'll stay in Manhattan to fight Bog. Now, hunkered down in a hobo camp, Doc finds himself chatting up a fellow with the same no-eyes-having look as Larry. He says he got the human touch, and now things are so much clearer. This fellow's skin pulls away, and he's got that same sun-target look as the superhero one. He passes on the human touch to Doc, and now Doc is freaking out, man. (laughs) Now, while uh, Charles and Bog fight in the rubble-strewn streets of Manhattan, Amelia enters the old farmhouse upstate. Now, she finds creatures kept in cages. Uh, They kind of look like silhouettes of the Puzz Fundles, who we'll be getting to in a bit, uh, in a reverse angle. Uh, Amelia sees what looks like a doppelganger of herself, or doppelgangers of herself, and Charles emerge from the shadows. But when they come into the light, she sees they are hideous. Failed clone Amelia has seven eyes and a forked tongue. Failed clone Charles has a face sort of like a melting swamp thing. 
Looks like they were also on janitorial duty, so they kept busy. That was nice. Uh, from the farmhouse, Amelia lets out a no that absolutely tears everything apart, including much of the local area. I mean, like, major upheaval, tectonic shifts. It's, it gets crazy. Now mm-hmm. things uh, in New York are looking really apocalyptic. The ground quakes and shifts, breaks apart from all the superiors fighting and screaming and carrying on. Egypt is holding onto the top of a telephone pole for dear life while the world beneath her is in chaos. Now, from Egypt's vantage point, she spies a massive crowd of people coursing along the broken ground in a line, shaped sort of like a gigantic slug. Or at the front of the slug, held up by everyone, is J-Hole screaming, join or die. Egypt heads over to the slug made of humans and tries to appeal to J-Hole. She's told she needs to start at the bottom before appealing to the big boss. J-Hole tells people to fast-track her up to the top, and there's a little grumbling as they go about and do it. Now, J-Hole turns all green again and possessed by the other, and he tells Egypt she could be his queen in this new world of whatever's left. (laughs) Now, uh, she looks about to take him up on the offer when a kid-sized, the superhero one, swings by and grabs Egypt away. If you haven't guessed, it's Larry. Yeah. Now, Larry takes her up to the top of a crumbling building and appeals to Egypt's better nature. She's at first reluctant, but then realizes that she's been a crummy, selfish mom and determined to jump off the building to kill herself. Sure. Why not? Now, uh, let the punishment fit the crime, I guess. Uh, now, before, <laughs> before she lands, Larry gives her the human touch and snatches her eyeballs away. And that takes us to the final issue in this miniseries, the one number six, May 1986 cover date. This cover looks like a very greasy fast food double cheeseburger and some strangely small French fries. So those look weirdly small. But Shoestring. Maybe maybe the yeah, maybe the fries are normal size and the hamburger is tremendous. You know. It's true. Uh, in New York, Charles has Bog on the ropes, or more literally, actually, in a full Nelson. He keeps straining, popping tendons and vertebrae until Bog is paralyzed. Then Charles drops a mountain on Bog. Amelia shows up, sadly acknowledging that Charles was right about their shared past. But on the plus side. Now they can do the nasty. This frustrates Bog, still alive but immobile under the mountain. He pounds the ground steadily, creating a doom, 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 and a sustained global earthquake. When Charles and Atlas start getting busy, that destabilizes the ground even more. They make the earth move. And President McKenzie and his cabinet watch all of this unfold via satellite. Perverts. Now, elsewhere, a now Ellis Egypt drops back into the mass of people that are being controlled by the other. See, a person has to decide between the one or the other. Oh! Yes. Now, J-Hole tells his minions to sell, send Egypt to the front of the pack. While waiting for her, Larry and J-Hole converse as the one and the other. J-Hole is really puking up some serious green grossness now. It's uh, very vile. Yeah. Now, then Egypt, now suited up as the superhero one, busts out of the human slug, sending several of them flying. J-Hole lands on a parking meter and dies, but the slug moves along without him. Uh, Gouda and Doc are also hanging around. They're looking both like superhero ones, but Doc is still freaking out, man. Larry (laughs) gathers them all up, and they fly into a stream of electromagnetic energy where millions of the superhero ones are converging to a point at the North Pole, naturally. At that moment, Ubermouse rises from the Atlantic Ocean and starts destroying (laughs) Washington, D.C. President McKenzie prepares to evacuate, but first, one more look at Charles and Amelia's sex tape. And then Charles and Amelia shows up, and it gets awkward. 
Mm-hmm. Amelia grabs Mackenzie and throws him into space, right through the spy satellite that recorded the bumpin' uglies. <laughs> At the North Pole, everyone is coming together to form a gigantic form of the superhero one. This giant gathers up all the electromagnetic energy on Earth and floats away, taking the magnetism and therefore everyone's collected consciousness with him. Orbiting above the Earth in his private space shuttle, Itchy Itch, if you remember him from before, he tries re-entering the atmosphere, but without a working compass, explodes. Yeah, he's sort of been going through the series, doing his own thing, providing some commentary, but in the short recaps we did here, it just was too much to throw in there, but he, he doesn't really figure in prominently, except at the very beginning, and then... Here's his ending. Um, back on Earth, the Human One interrupts Charles and Amelia just as they're about to get freaky again. The Human One thanks them, explains that Bog will die soon enough, and they'll begin, be the new Adam and Eve that will begin the cycle anew. And the one and the other will renew their timeless battle as well. Ubermouse will also die in about a year, conveniently, and for some reason, even though he survived on the under the Atlantic Ocean for 40 years. For a very long time, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it will be an age of monsters for a while, explains the human one, but eventually things will tip toward enlightenment again. The mass of people following the other appears to have tripled in size now, containing hundreds of millions of people. It's just massive. The human one reveals that Charles and Amelia are clones of the kidnapped baby of Charles Lindbergh and missing transatlantic pilot Amelia Earhart, which is... A nice little touch. Yeah, nice, uh, clever. Yeah, and sort of, and you know, this uh, project did start back in the uh, long ago, so there's a feasibility there. Then, the human one approaches the massive roiling slug of human beings created by the other, and prepares to work his way to the top so they can reset their struggle. Meanwhile, in maybe heaven, uh, we have <laughs> Egypt, <laughs> Egypt, Gouda, Larry, and Doc. They're all in paradise, openly loving each other, uh, not 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 having sex with one another, just being very vocal about their affection. Yeah. Uh, they are also naked, though, for some reason, uh, which, you know, it's kind of weird because the, it seemed like the story so far has kind of uh, studiously avoided frontal nudity yeah. and just, even cursing, uh, right? It's like, yeah, uh, you know, the the mother shucking, you know, the shucking is yeah, like their absolutely. version of that. And there are many places where we could have seen more nudity, like when the Charles and Amelia have sex, or when sure. Charles or at the heroin den. I mean, there, yeah. but we have not seen any nudity. But then all of a sudden, here at the very end, we see, and it's not like it's it's tasteless. It's just like I didn't no. expect it at the very end, but I guess that's where we are. Sure. Now, uh, as always, Doc is still freaking out, man. But then uh, Larry tells him that the Beatles are are performing nearby. So everyone goes to hear the Beatles sing Yellow Submarine. In space, the giant, the superhero one, is flying around and then becomes part of a galactic clockwork. And eventually, here's another calling that draws him elsewhere. We never figure out exactly where, but it's very mysterious and esoteric. Yeah, I guess that's the further adventures of the one to be, yes. to be chronicled never, ever, ever again. But uh, we wanted to talk about the Puzz Fundles. We've mentioned them. Uh, kind of, this is going to be difficult, but uh, each issue yes. of the one has a one-page backup story titled The Puzz Fundles, written and drawn by Rick Grimes. It's really difficult to explain this comic in any kind of intelligible way. It's uh, crudely drawn, features the far-out arguments of five or more mutant roommates that actually may be made of clay, we, we thought today. Maybe, yeah. Uh, living in a horribly disheveled-looking apartment. We've got Thripey Skake, the most human of the group, who is very pudgy and has a Bozo the Clown haircut. A Von Sticky, a short, bean-shaped fellow who is menaced by Thripey Skake. 
and Mimo, a two-headed guy in a striped and polka-dotted jumper who is menaced by Von Sticky. We have Iggy, a freakish, uh, old-looking guy with pipe cleaner limbs. Maloon, who looks sort of like a squashed cartoon hot. There's also a small gingerbread man, also with pipe cleaner limbs. Uh, but we never really get a name for him. Mm-mm. And a uh, sawhorse in a tuxedo. I think I... What, what is Maybe? that? I'm fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, they all like to gamble on horse racing, and many of the fights are caused when run, one roommate steals from another. Also, Thripey Skake uh, seems addicted to chocolate cake, and that rhymes. There's a rhyme in there, so there's a little little uh, yeah. Yeah, nursery rhyme we could make. Yeah, now, there is no way we could adequately convey what happens in these panels, since and since they don't tie into the one's continuity, it's really not necessary. Uh, except, of course, when Amelia finds them, Puzz Fundles looking mutants in that old farmhouse, but that's probably more of a call-out. There, yeah. there actually are a lot of call-outs. To the, to in, the in, Puzz to Fundles, the Puzz yeah, Fundles here and there. Yeah. Uh, like on the Bill Carton and stuff. Absolutely, and the cover always mentions something. And you'll see like little snippets of them, but they don't really figure into the they story. They don't factor so in, they, yeah. they live in whatever weird universe where there's only one twin tower for whatever reason. Uh, yes. Personally speaking, uh, I love these comics. As a kid, I probably read and reread these more than the actual comic book. Uh, this is a comic that I did see when I was a kid. My father brought it home, and I remember reading it and not really understanding it, but Puzz Fundles I understood. It was very, you know, very <laughs> weird. Uh, also, since they are but a page, after all, so it's yeah. a lot easier to get through those than the rest of the comic. Uh, you can find all them online for free at grimescomics.wordpress.com. And we'll put a direct link right to those in the show notes if you want to see what we're talking about. Excellent. But we're going to wrap up Rick Veach, his uh, bio. We don't have a ton, of, ton to say, even though he's quite storied. But he started drawing the saga of the Swamp Thing with issue number 37, June 1985 cover, the introduction of John Constantine. He also drew Marvelman, Miracleman by Alan Moore during the infamous graphic birth scene. He began drawing Swamp Thing regularly with issue number 50, that was July 86 cover, took over Swamp Thing writing duties after Moore left with issue number 65, that was October 1987 cover. He had a storyline meant to go to issue number 91, but in issue number 88, he planned to reveal that the very crucifix upon which Jesus Christ hung was infused with an avatar of the green. DC refused to run this story, so Veach walked and vowed never to work with DC Comics again until it was printed. Issue number 88, September 1989, is credited to Doug Wheeler as the writer, and many were hopeful that we would eventually see this when DC announced Vertigo Resurrected, where the previously rejected Warren Ellis Hellblazer story shoot finally saw print, but to my knowledge, this has never officially seen yeah, print. No dice. Yeah. Now, he would go back to his independent roots, uh, post-TMNT fervor, and uh, created some black-and-white comics. He worked with Alan Moore again on uh, 1963 and Supreme, both through Image. He was hired on as a regular artist for Moore's America's Best Comics, A Wildstorm of Imprint. Uh, I'm sorry, A Wildstorm of Imprint? (laughs) An imprint of Wildstorm, that is. Uh, He would return to do some work for DC in the early 2000s, but uh, clearly writes his own ticket. And, good news for everybody, it looks like the one is coming back into... Reprint in 2018 from IDW Publishing. First, it'll be released as single issues, and then it'll get a collected edition. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see that because, you know, the original comics are okay in quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are a you know, product of their time and his abilities and, you know, printed on pulp paper and stuff. Uh, then the there was a black and white collected edition that came out yes. that he put out like in the late 90s, yeah. which, or maybe in the early 2000s. Uh, 
which looks fine, but you are, like I say, these concentric circles, this whole, there is a, a strong color palette going on through Motif, this series. Yeah. Uh, so I'll be interested to see what IDW does with it, if they change it at all, or maybe printing on better stock will change the nature of it. But uh, we wrapped up the one, we wrapped up Rick Veach. We really have one more story in this podcast we've got to wrap up here, Chris, and that is the Cold War. Uh, the Cold War would become hot in December 1979 when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. With the election of the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in 1979 and United States President Ronald Reagan in 1980, a change in Western foreign policy approach towards the Soviet Union was marked with the abandonment of detente in favor of the Reagan Doctrine. This was a policy of the Reagan administration to overwhelm the global influence of the Soviet Union in an attempt to end the Cold War. The U.S. started to actively support rebel movements in Soviet-controlled uh, country and Soviet-controlled countries, as well as funding and training guerrilla fighters against Soviet forces in Nicaragua, Argentina, and Afghanistan. This would turn out bad in the long run on nearly every front. But that's a tale for another comic book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, in response to this newly militarized reality, American culture became nuclear war obsessed, and many films, books, and games came out in response to this. And also comics, but we'll get to those at the end. Now, the video game Missile Command was released by Atari in 1980. In this game, you protect cities from increasingly heavy nuclear bombard- bombardments using a rollerball and a targeting reticule. Yeah, it's one of those games you either love it or you hate it, and I'm not yes. a lo- I'm not a lover of it, but that's fine. Me too. Uh, early in 1982, the NBC network created the mini aired the miniseries World War III, starring Kathy Lee Crosby. Set in the year 1987, it's about the Soviet invasion of Alaska. Very prescient. Yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> also in 1982, television anthology program Mobile Show- Showcase uh, debuted an adaptation of James Clavell's short tale, The Children's Story, first published in Reader's Digest in 1964 and collected as a novel in 1981, published by Dell. Now, the story, which takes place over a 25-minute span, depicts of the brainwashing of American children in a classroom after a totalitarian government has taken over the United States. They never explicitly say it's the Soviets, but it's pretty clearly implied. Yeah, they tell them to reject their god, to, uh, you know adhere to the state. It's all types of obvious little implications there. Sure. Uh, Hasbro Toy Company relaunched their dormant G.I. Joe Army toy as a smaller, more collectible figure in 1982. Under the tagline, A Real American Hero, the line produced well over 500 figures and 250 vehicles and playsets. The toys were supported by a comic book produced by Marvel Comics, initially written by Larry Hama and drawn by Herb Trimp. This series lasted until 1994, a total of 155 issues. And really, in a sense, it could have gone in the comic section, but it really was in support initially, at least, of this toy line. So I felt like it should be here. Sure, sure. And uh, it's actually back. Uh, they they re uh, they brought it back with the legacy numbering at IDW. Really? It's, uh, wow. Yeah, it's currently in the mid-200s right is, now. Is Hammond writing it? He is. He is indeed. Wow. Well, it's uh, it's not. It's not that great, but uh, it's there. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, MGM distributed a film called War Games in 1983, directed by John Badham and starring Matthew Broderick, Dabney Coleman, and Ali Sheedy. In it, Matthew plays a whiz kid computer hacker that breaks into the Pentagon systems and nearly starts a nuclear war. Oopsie. Yeah. Uh, that very same year, ABC aired the made-for-TV movie The Day After, directed by Nicholas Meyer, starring Jason Robard, Steve Gutenberg, and John Lithgow, among many other well-known actors, especially on the 
made-for-TV movie uh, <laughs> section. <laughs> uh, a nuclear war leads to a missile hitting Kansas City, Missouri, due to its close proximity to missile silos. Half the movie is a stark portrayal of the aftermath of this annihilation, and it ain't pretty, folks. More than 100 million people and nearly 39 million households watched the program during its initial broadcast. Wild. Yeah. And how often are we ever going to say Steve Gutenberg in this show? I probably, probably not enough. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do the Police Academy comics one day. We'll have another chance. Yes, we can. <laughs> the movie Red Dawn, directed by John Milius, mm-hmm. and uh, starring Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Leah Thompson, Ben Johnson, Harry Dean Stanton, and many other greats, would come out in 1984. In it, the United States is invaded by the Soviet Union and its Cuban and Nicaraguan allies, but they're resisted by some high school students organized under the name of their school mascot, the Wolverines. Yeah, and they win, folks. Speaking of winning, in 1985, the Chuck Norris vehicle Invasion USA came out, directed by Joseph Sito. Soviet-backed Nicaraguans in this movie make a push to invade the United States. Unfortunately, they are opposed by Chuck Norris and therefore have no hope of succeeding at all. Uh, Chuck Norris does actually have forces with him, but they are irrelevant. Chuck Norris takes care of everything. Yeah, we don't need anything more. (laughs) Uh, We have uh, Gotcha! It's a 1985 film starring Anthony Edwards and Linda Fiorentino, directed by Jeff Canu. Uh, Anthony is a collegiate paintball prankster who gets caught up in the dark world of Cold War espionage. This also became a video game, believe it or not. That's right, I remember it. A Nintendo game, yeah. One of the few with the uh, light zapper, right? Yes, a few that actually took advantage of the zapper. (laughs) Now, and let us not forget Rocky IV, also from 1985, where Rocky goes up against ideal Russian specimen Ivan Drago. Yeah, who probably looks similar to, you know, Bog is based on him, so uh, it all gets wrapped (laughs) around. But uh, let us really wrap up the Cold War, some further fun that happened. Something I've rarely seen talked about, but I remember hearing about this more when I was a kid, was nuclear nightmares. Uh, Many young children during the 1980s reported having vivid nightmares of dying in a bright blast of light, or from having their skin bubble and peel away, revealing bones. Uh, These spiked naturally after the initial broadcast of the day after. And, you know, Chris, this is sort of dealt in that scene in The Watchmen, where... Mm -hmm. um, uh, Night Owl's having a dream, remember this? And, like, a nuclear blast takes him and... Do you remember this at all? Uh, I think so. And also in Terminator 2, um, what's her name? The woman, Sarah Linda Connor. Hamilton? Linda Hamilton has, like, a dream and sees a whole uh, park get, a playground get pulled apart by a nuclear blast. I never... I don't remember having dreams like this. No. But a lot of my friends talked to me about this, both at the time and later on, that they had... A lot of dreams like this, but uh, I actually, interesting. I actually didn't see the day after when it first broadcast, which might have something to do with that. I, I, That's true. <laughs> I didn't know what would happen. So, uh, uh, President Reagan was given a private screening of the day after, and he was said to be deeply shaken. He revised his posture toward nuclear war in favor of ne- eventual nuclear abolition, at least in part due to the experience watching the film. So, mm. it's quite a film. Check it out, folks. Yeah. Now we're going to head into Glasnost here. Uh, 1988 would see Mikhail Gorbachev's introduction of Glasnost, literally meaning publicity, which gave the Soviet people freedoms that they had never previously known, including a a greater freedom of speech. Now, this uh, really started breaking down the social mores, uh, leading to the creation of Russian hard rock band Gorky Park. Yeah, among other things, you know, that's (laughs) maybe maybe a more spurious side of it, but there it was. (laughs) And also, we can't forget that uh, Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush was elected president in 1988, and he would even more quickly thaw relations between the United States and USSR. 
1989, Soviet forces withdrew from Afghanistan. On November 9, 1989, reacting to an unsubstantiated news broadcast, people began tearing down the Berlin Wall. By 1990, Gorbachev consented to German reunification, not that it was really his decision to make anymore. It pretty no. much happened by that time. Uh, on December 3, 1989, Gorbachev and Bush declared the Cold War over at the Malta summer, Summit. And one year later, the two former rivals were partners in the Gulf War against Iraq. So that was how quickly the Gold War got turned off, like almost like a light switch. Mm-hmm. You know, decades of enmity, and then it was like, now we're pals again. Yep, and, the power uh, of David Hasselhoff. Exactly. The powerful <laughs> fellow, that guy. He reunited he united a nation. Uh, He's been yeah. looking for freedom, yeah. And, you know, we don't, we don't like to get too much into current events here, and we're not going to do it now, but I wish I could tell you what the status is now if, between Russia and the U.S. It's not very clear, but anyway. Nebulous, yeah. yes, at best. <laughs> uh, uh, let's talk about them comics, Chris. Yes, let's let's circle around and bring it back to the comics and characters inspired by or about the Cold War. We're only going to talk to the ones that came out around the 80s, uh, basically contemporaries of the one, because if we if we were doing a full-blown wow. episode, oh boy, we it's, would be going for a long it's time. It's a big story, yeah. The whole <laughs> 50s was like a Cold War and everything. Absolutely. We're going to start with Colossus, a.k.a. Piotr, Peter Rasputin. He's that steel-skinned mutant created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. Debuted in Giant Size X-Men number one, May 1975, cover date. He was raised on a Soviet collective farm in Russia. He's found by Professor X and brought to the U.S. to join the X-Men. After Colossus helps free the mastermind villain Arcade from one of Doctor Doom's Doombots, he repays Peter by brainwashing him into thinking he's uh, the Soviet hero proletariat in uh, X-Men Volume 1, number 124. That's August 1979, cover date by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He comes complete with red overalls that have the hammer and sickle and Lenin's face on them for good measure. That's right, just so you're sure what type of communist he wants to be. He aspires to be the pure, you know, pre-Stalin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Judge Dredd, created by John John Wagner, Carlos Esquera, and Pat Mills, first appearing in 2000 AD number two. That was March 5th, 1977. A tough as nails judge and jury police officer in a dystopian state-controlled future that takes criminals to justice. The ultimate justice. And by that we mean death. Uh, judge Dredd attained more than United States recognition when heavy metal band Anthrax released the homage I Am the Law in 1987. Mm. Now, V for Vendetta by Alan Moore and David Lloyd. This was initially published in serial form in the UK magazine Warrior between the years 1982 and 1985. It would eventually be uh, completed and collected in a 10-issue series running from September 1988 to May 1989, published by DC Comics. In it, in a uh, near-future fascistic Britain, a mysterious man brings down the totalitarian government through pranks and musical numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that'll probably that'll probably get a ride on the treadmill one of these days. I bet it will, yeah. Uh, American Flag by Howard Chaykin. This was at 50 issues, October 1983 to March 1988 from First Comics. In the year 2031, television star Ruben Flagg is drafted into a space war of subterfuge and conspiracy involving the U.S. government in exile on Mars and various corporate entities that control every aspect of human life. It's political commentary for the time, if you hadn't guessed. Yeah, I think even the second volume had, like, the backwards R and spelled American with a K. Um, It did a very heavy uh, Russian vibe. Russian vibe to it, all right. 
Now we have When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs. So this is a notch-bound notch bound comic from 1983 in Penguin Books. In it, an elderly British couple tries to carry on as normal after a nuclear bomb hits England, but they succumb to the gruesome radiation sickness. This would be adapted into an animated film of the same name in 1986. It was directed by Jimmy Murakami, which is better remembered by British folks of the appropriate age. Yeah, have you ever seen this? I've never seen Never it. even heard of it. But uh, it's it's there the day after, apparently. Mm. Like, it really struck a hit and hit a certain generation. And have it animated, that's... Yeah, and, and it, yeah. It's, I did look at some stills online, and it has a very... Uh, it's not. It's not like Akira, but it has a very anime-ish vibe. You gotta, you gotta, okay. I think it's worth. Uh, I'm gonna take a look if I can find yeah. a full version of it. Uh, Reagan's Raiders by Monroe Arnold and Rich Buckler had three issues, 1986, from Solson Publications. President Ronald Reagan and Vice President George H. W. Bush, along with members of the cabinet, undergo a process to become beefcake. Captain America-style defenders of liberty and justice, etc., etc. Uh, Captain America-style meaning they are very strong and built. They are decidedly not like Cap in that they murder everyone violently, and usually with automatic weapons. So that part very is good. different. <laughs> <laughs> now we've got another Alan Moore book here. We have Watchmen by Moore and Dave Gibbons. It ran 12 issues from 86 to 87 from DC Comics. In an alternate 1985 where costumed heroes really exist and nuclear war is imminent, one retired adventurer attempts to save the world by... Destroying a city. Hey. Uh, and it, his old teammates come out of their hidey holes to try to stop him. Yeah. and uh, another, another one that'll probably take a ride on the treadmill sooner than Oh, that, that could be a long ride, though, I have a feeling. It's we'll see, several episodes. See yeah. how we might want to handle that one, but that, that'll be <laughs> down the line. Uh, Rocket Red was created by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten and debuted in Green Lantern Corps number 208, 1987 cover date. The Rocket Red Brigade was a Soviet defense squadron wearing armor designed by the Green Lantern Kilowog, whose personal politics from his home planet were closest to communism. A few Rocket Reds would join the Justice League, and one of them was a Manhunter. Oh! Can you believe that? Yeah, and as though, and though it's outside the narrow purview of this list, it bears mentioning that the Marvel Age and the initial Marvel superheroes are totally products of the Cold War. Yeah. We've got the Fantastic Four. They're an American nuclear family fulfilling John F. Kennedy's wish that the U.S. would win the space race. We've also got the Hulk. He's the product of military weapons development, in this case, the Gamma Bomb. And of course, Tony Stark is held by the Viet Cong and made to develop weapons for them. Instead, he creates the Iron Man suit, and there's more. Once you start picking them apart, you start seeing where the Cold War has influenced so much 20th century culture. James Bond sure. is a total, uh, you know, outgrowth of the yeah. Cold War. Uh, so many different little things, but uh, that's uh, pretty much where we're going to leave it now for this uh, high school and comic book history lesson. Uh, what do we? What do you think of the one? This was the first time you checked out the one, Chris, right? It, yeah, I've been meaning to check it out uh, ever since we we talked about it a couple of years back. And I, it, it's the weirdest thing when you do like a when you do a show and you do a blog. Anything that you read that doesn't pertain to either yeah. kind of feels you like can't justify it. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't get priority. So I'm really happy that we were able to do it. Um, I really enjoyed it. I don't know that I got all of it. I don't know that I got all the uh, nuances of it. Um, you know, when this came out, it was what, 85? Yeah. Yeah, I was five years old. So, right. I mean, I, I I really wasn't too much into the gestalt of all this, but uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I got Watchmen-y vibes from it, even though it doesn't really feel like Watchmen, but I got the same kind of vibe. Mm. Um, 
just really good. I thought the uh, Amelia and Charles uh, nugget at the end was clever. Yeah. Uh, just a, a lot of fun, of grimy, and uh, really sucked you in. You know, I would definitely say this falls, you know, it sort of is, has a whole inference about, you know, the one being the uh, let's all get together and, you know, come together and hold Love hands, them, yeah. and then the other is to be more selfish and violent. And, you know, it sort of boils it down to be very uh, polarized, but I didn't get a, a very preachy feeling from this. Um, maybe it was a that's, too esoteric for that. Maybe that's what it was. It, yeah. it, maybe maybe it was, you know, the, the the decision to be part of the one actually seems terrifying. You know, it's basically giving yes. up your whole self, whereas the decision to join the human slug also seems terrifying. So, <laughs> uh, but I, I definitely, you know, like I said, I, when I read this as a kid, I was 10 when I, or 10 or 11 when I first started seeing this. I barely understood uh, hmm. a lot of the, the main story. Like I say, I was... Heavily into the puzz fundals and <laughs> especially the gross pictures of uh, Bog eating. I, yes. those, those are things that that stand out in my mind as just being like you know. And whenever uh, Jay Hall becomes the other, I remember those because they're gross. But uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, seeing it a bunch of times now, I reading it now three times and then picking apart a fourth time. I think it's a pretty good commentary on the way the world was at the time and. <laughs> The idea that, you know, under mutually assured destruction, under the Cold War, there is a unification of people, you know? Even though yeah. even though we're enemies with Russia uh, and vice versa, you know, there's also a sort of we're in the same... We're all in the same boat. Exactly. We're in the yeah. same basket together. And, uh, you know, this sort of plays on that, that when you take away that safety net of, you know, world suicide, mm. how things can get crazy. And, you know... It made me think, I couldn't help but think that's sort of where we are today. We don't have that kind of a global threat, you know, that we have a lot of threats coming yeah. from a lot of places, you know what I mean? It's not the well, same. No ultimate boogeyman. Exactly. There's, there's, there's no push a button, you know, a bunch of missiles are going to fly over. There's a lot of ways it could happen, natural mm -hmm. end by people. I mean, there's just, just a lot more going on, I feel. So uh, this was almost like a nostalgic trip back to a nicer time. Very <laughs> <laughs> but true. <laughs> An easier, quainter time of yeah, 1985. But uh, of course, folks, we want to know what you thought about it. If you've read the one, if you plan to read the one when it's re-released, mm -hmm. if you've got comments about the Cold War, if you could think of other comics from this time period that would also evoke uh, the Cold War, we want you to write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mail history. You can find us on Twitter at cosmic T-mail and find me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. You can see our weekly writings over at weirdsciencedccomics.com and you can see Chris's daily writings on his personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.com where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week. Uh, lately jumping that day of judgment. Mm -hmm. Serious. I don't want to sway you on that. But I it's uh it's uh, the first issue was kind of rough the second issue kind of took me a bit more but it's uh it's got Hal Jordan in it so kind of I might be a little biased oh whenever you see it. him you're like oh that's that's grandpa's uh, that's my guy yeah I don't you know uh yeah it's uh it, I, we'll see what happens yeah the thing to do is to go over to chrisinfoearth.com and follow his reviews find out <laughs> what he thinks of it at the very end it'll be exciting for him and. For us alike, I have a feeling. <laughs> I have a feeling you don't know how you're going to like it at the end either, so we'll find I don't, out. Yeah, I, this is one of the few that I've never read, so this is, a, this is interesting to, to actually experience it for a first time while I'm 
talking about it. So wow. that's uh, that's pretty neat. Uh, speaking of talking about it, something we don't do enough on this site, uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. It's the show website that uh, needs a little bit of love. Uh, you know, we we still have that. <laughs> we still have that uh, personals ad out for a uh, for an unpaid intern, right? Yes, please. If you'd like to be an unpaid intern, handle our social <laughs> media. Uh, that would be, be fantastic. And let me tell you, if you did a half-ass job, you'd still be doing twice the job that we've been At doing least, it. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, we, we don't expect that to happen, but we definitely could use it in our in the uh, weird comics history offices. <laughs> but uh, I think that's all we got for this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? Nah, it'll do it. Well, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill flesh-searingly. See ya. You burn it.